Welcome to episode 12 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. This episode is called Forever Wars, Resilience and Readiness. Stephanie Von Latke will be joining me in a minute to discuss a variety of topics, including our respective trips. She was just in Paris for the opening of Weiss France, and she has some ideas and thoughts about France's views towards the Arctic. Uh, we will then talk about a different conference, the Halifax International Security Forum, and how it directly involved the pardon mess in the United States and the firing of the Secretary of Navy. And then we'll talk about the Canadian Defense and Security Network's appearance at the Association of Canadian Studies in the United States. We will then move on to talk about the security theme, which had its own meeting last week in Quebec. Our emerging scholar this week is Rebecca Jensen, who's going to talk about military adaptation. Feature interview is Kiara Rufa, discussing military culture and intervention. I interviewed her at the Ergomos, the European Research Group on Military and Societies, conference last summer in Lisbon. And then I'll conclude uh, the podcast with a peeve about the Chinese embassy in Ottawa and the Carlton students who are supposed to go there and not ask any difficult questions. Stephanie, what are you doing in Paris? I am in Paris for a very exciting event that's happening tomorrow. It's the inauguration of Women in International Security France, or WISE France. So tomorrow I'm hoping that I'll also be interviewing some of the founders after the kickoff event organized by the Canadian Embassy. And if you give me a chance sometime today, I'll tell you about some of the meetings that the embassy organized uh, for me and uh, and uh, the other Canadian delegate. It involved learning about France's position on the Arctic, which was quite surprising to me, at least. Well, tell us about it. Well, I did not know that France had articulated clear policy position on the Arctic, but I was given this document. Uh, first of all, the fun fact of the day was that Ségolène Royal, I don't know if you remember her, but she's the former Socialist Party candidate for the presidency and is now serving as the ambassador for the Arctic and Antarctic. So in French, her title is Ambassadrice Chargée des Négociations sur les Pôles Arctique et Antarctique. That was a fun fact for me because technically uh, she is the French delegate to the Arctic Council, even though France isn't an Arctic Council member, but an observer. So seeing her in that role to me was, uh, anyways, it was news. So France is not an Arctic Council member, has observer status, um, but it has some pretty clear positions on what the Arctic should look like or how uh, states should behave around the Arctic. First of all, France sees itself, and here I'm quoting from the document, as a lucid voice against growing ambitions. The Arctic belongs to no one. So this is a pretty strong statement and it was signed by Florence Parly, the Minister of the Armed Forces, and it's certainly a statement that I think Canadian observers would react to. And I have another one here, which is from a separate document. Uh, this is from the French Strategic Review of the Ministry of the Armed Forces, and this one was published in 2017. 
2016. And it says that the Arctic could even become a second Middle East. So that made me think of our episode because, you know, we're talking about forever wars in the Middle East, but also Afghanistan. And that French statement on the Arctic was just baffling to me. I have no doubt the region has gotten busier in the past decade, but I'm always skeptical of alarmist security narratives about the Arctic. I assume it means that there's large pools of oil that everybody's competing over. But the thing about the Middle East is it's the middle of everything, whereas my thing whenever I talk, think about the Arctic is it's far from everything. And so the process of fighting a war, doing anything up there is incredibly difficult because it's the timelines. It takes weeks to get up there and anything that goes wrong will require weeks to respond to it. I just don't think it's going to be quite that problematic, but uh, that's an interesting perspective on things. Yeah, especially for a non-Arctic nation. Anyway, so I've been I've been over here for not even 24 hours. Have you been traveling or are you traveling for Thanksgiving maybe? I am. I'm going to be visiting my family in New England. It'll be the first time I've seen my daughter since since August, and it's our chance to be my my chance to be give thankful again. I, obviously, I gave thanks when I was for Canadian Thanksgiving, but now I'll give thanks to for all the wonderful things the Americans are giving us these days. Lots and lots of stuff to talk about in our <laughs> classes. <laughs> Um, I mean, the events of this weekend where the Secretary of the Navy loses his job for upholding order and discipline in the military, contrary to the President of the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. my goodness. As somebody who studies civil-military relations, this is great stuff. As someone who is an American, it's highly embarrassing. Yeah, maybe you can remind our listeners of the whole pardon issue. Okay, so we have three different naval—actually, three different military— uh, people who got pardoned or their sentences commuted by Donald Trump. Uh, This bothered the military because these people had engaged in war crimes and indeed several of them had their own people in their own units testify against them for doing awful things in wartime. And Trump, thanks to Fox News and thanks to a few people hectoring him, has decided to pardon these people because war is tough and you got to just be bloody and miserable and nasty. Uh, Elliot Cohen had actually had a good piece today explaining that we actually have to draw this line and have order and discipline because once you go across that line, you have barbarism, essentially. The interesting thing that happened is that the particular person in the center of this, Gallagher, when he got reinstated in the military, it didn't necessarily mean that he was going to be reinstated in the SEALs, the special force, the naval special forces. And this became a thing about whether he should get his pin back, his trident pin that would signify that he's a SEAL again. And the Navy in the person of the Secretary of the Navy and of the Admiral who's in charge of the SEAL units was basically saying there has to be a process to decide this because there should be no automatic inclusion to this. And just because you get uh, your sentence commuted by the President of the United States doesn't mean you're still fit to engage in this kind of service. Donald Trump didn't like that. And so he issued a tweet. And then that raised the question that we've been asking ourselves for the past three years, is a tweet in order? Mm. And... <laughs> and the Chief of uh, the, the Admiral and the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Spencer, both said that tweet is not an order and we'll just wait for the order to come down through the normal chain of command. And Spencer was in Halifax this past weekend at the Halifax International Security Forum, where when people talked to him, he, he pretty much stated that he was going to keep this stance and nobody was expecting him to be re- resigning. And then what happened in the past 24 hours is news broke that some people are claiming that Spencer or the Admiral had tried to make a side deal with people in the White House to get uh, Gallagher, the SEAL, to retire but be reinstated in the meantime. So that way he would tire as a SEAL and there's some sort of weird side deal. But the problem with that is that completely contradicts the entire narrative that Spencer was talking about. And the only people who are saying this are people within the White House who have done about as good a job as possible to erode any credibility they have over the past three years. So are you to believe Trump and the Trump team or are you to believe uh, Richard Spencer? And uh, mm-hmm. 
you can tell where I'm leaning on that one. So there's that. Yeah. And the Secretary of the Navy was uh, in Halifax for the Halifax Security Forum. There was also a lot of Twitter attention on the manual that was, <laughs> am I saying this right, Twitter attention? Yes. <laughs> it doesn't seem like proper Twitter slang. No, that's perfectly true. Perfectly accurate. Yes. There's a lot of Twitter attention yeah. because they had a panel about the status of women in the military and they had four men talk about it. That's right. So I'm, I'm all for men engaging on the topic of women in operations and the benefits that diverse teams can bring to military op operations. But why not have a mixed panel? I, I'm usually frustrated when we're discussing these topics and it's a room full of women. So I, I understand calling on men to engage on these issues, but at the same time, an all-male panel is like the other extreme. So it would have been really great to see a mixed panel at the very least. It's about time to actually have men and women talk to each other about gender and the armed forces. It seemed like an obvious move. And what it seemed obvious that if they did this, they would get a lot of heat for it. And they got a lot of heat for it. So we'll see how it goes in the future. But I, I, it was interesting that the, the forum did get a lot of attention for a lot of other issues. I think it's become more prominent, or at least it was more prominent this year than in the past. And now because of the Spencer news, it's going to live on for a little while longer because people are going to look back and see what Spencer said there and how people reacted to it. So the good news for us is we got a podcast out of it because we had we met those 11 women yeah. officers who are traveling around Canada that was on our, pod, our previous podcast. I'd like to go back to them and ask them how what they thought of the panel, but uh, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure they would comment on the record about it. No, but th those are themes that we'll have lots of opportunity to explore as well as part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. In fact, we had an opportunity to talk about our seven-year plan in Montreal during the AXIS conference, the Association for Canadian Studies in the United States, right? Yes, we spent a lot of time together last week in Montreal. Both uh, there was that, there was also a conference on military training that we also took part in. But at AXIS, what we did was we tried to introduce the CDSN to a, an audience of people who are really interested in Canadian studies, particularly those who study international relations, Canada's U.S. relationship with the world. And so I presented sort of the, the big picture of what we're trying to do, all of our activities and what our aims and objectives are. And then you presented what you're up to with your uh, personnel research theme. Yeah, I have the privilege of co-directing the military personnel node with Irina Goldenberg from DGMPRE. I'll have to spell that out now and not mess it up. The Director General Military Personnel Research and Analysis. Uh, we're organizing a workshop next April in Ottawa called The Many Faces of Diversity in Military Employment. And this ties to an important question for the military, how to recruit, develop, and retain the best people, a, a theme that we had embedded within the CDSN application for the grant. And lately, of course, we've seen the emphasis on, on making the armed forces an employer of choice so that I can compete for talent in an increasingly tough market. The focus on people is really front and center in uh, strong, secure, and engaged, the Canadian defense policy statement. And the other big focus, of course, is diversity, not only to broaden the talent pool that the military can recruit from, I guess as a lens through which to address past discrimination against women, indigenous communities, LGBTQ2S members, and racialized individuals. So Irina and I want to investigate these types of identities, which 
might be felt at the personal level and how they intersect with professional identities. And here we mean distinctions between regular and reserve force personnel, military members versus defense civilians, as well as cultural differences among the military services. So that's the plan. But uh, we'll be holding that at the end of April. So that'll be our first event. Very excited about it. Excellent. Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that keeps coming up is one of the challenges that the modern militaries have is that their recruiting pools are getting smaller as families get smaller and as democracies of the world are having fewer babies. And, and whenever I hear this, it seems like it's complaining about the fact that empowered women are having fewer children. And, and I want to make, I always want to push back and go, the best way to improve the recruiting pools of the military is double the size by actually doing a better job of including women and you'll get deeper talent pools. Uh, so it's, I'm glad that you're working on this. It's clearly something that is a priority to the government, but I think sometimes they have a hard time figuring out exactly how to approach it. So if we could give them some good social science to figure out better ways to do it, I think we'll make a, a major difference. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys produce out of this. Well, thank you. I'm sure you'll be there as well. Well, since it's in Ottawa, I will be. I, I'm not going to make it a policy to show up at every single uh, <laughs> workshop because I, I do have a day job. But I, speaking of which, I was in Quebec uh, City this past weekend at the security node, their first workshop, where they're trying to just simply understand as a starting point, what kinds of information do we use to understand defense and security? What kind of biases do we have in, in our understanding of this? Vanessa Kimball is leading this effort, and eventually she's going to be producing a data set on Canada's defense and security agreements with the rest of the world, because there's very few data sets actually on understanding Canada's defense and security situation. So it was a really interesting event. I will ultimately pursue some of the graduate students who presented there, because they, they were really sharp, and I think we could get some good uh, emerging scholar interviews from them. And it was good to see the engagement of both quantitative people and critical security studies types together in one room talking about these issues of how do we understand what we're looking at and can we actually have a conversation amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, a, it was a good event and it was a good start for that node. And uh, speaking of plugs for the CASN, uh, I want to make two more. One is that <laughs> ErgoMOS, the European Research Group on uh, Militaries and Societies, a group of sociologists, psychologists, and other folks who study the military and society, is now a member of the CDSN. We have featured a few podcasts from uh, interviews I had at their meeting last summer in Lisbon. And now that they've done all the paperwork and they've agreed to become a member of our, our network. And so I look forward to, to going to Europe in the future to, to engage in more of their activities and hopefully bring some of their people over to Canada to engage in our activities. And the second plug is that the year ahead conference that we have in Ottawa is December 6th. And so if you're people are interested in that, where we sort of look at, at the year ahead and try to speculate about what are the challenges we're facing, of the opportunities, you can go to the CSIDS, C-S-I-D-S website at Carleton for the details, or you can hit me up on Twitter and I can send you in the right direction uh, for that. That's very much uh, the, our focus in the next week since it, December is just a week away. And we have an exciting episode now that we've uh, had a chance to warm up. We do have an Emerging Scholar segment this week with Rebecca Jensen from the University of Calgary. She studies military adaptation as it relates to U.S operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, paying attention to service culture and how they may shape warfighting. And then we have your interview with Kier Rufa. Is that right? That's right. I actually hung out with her at both the Ergomas meeting in Lisbon, where I taped the interview, and I met up again with her in Paris because she was also there for the European Initiative on Security Studies. So uh, yes, uh, Kier is a really interesting woman. She's done some great field work comparing how peacekeepers, both Italian and French, behave in Lebanon and 
Afghanistan to see what difference it makes between the two different cultures of those two different militaries, as well as whether it makes a difference, whether it's something uh, a little less kinetic like Lebanon and something a lot more violent like Afghanistan. So it's a great book and the interview is an interesting one. I think I would say the same thing for her, what I used to say for you. I used to say that you're the future of Canadian defense studies <laughs> and you're now the present. I, w- I would have said that she's the future of, of European defense and security studies, but she's very much the present. She's got a lot of different projects going on, uh, doing really interesting things. So that that should be a fun interview. I had the opportunity to read her book too. I reviewed it for parameters, but I thought I would plug it and give our listeners with the full title of her book, which was published in 2018, called Military Cultures in Peace and Stability Operations, Afghanistan and Lebanon. It was published with the University of Pennsylvania Press. And as I was getting ready to do my own field work this year, I was looking at scholarly work that had been done that could accurately depict military interactions at the tactical level. Uh, I really found that Rufa's book was was a great reference and it, it truly inspired my own field work this year. Uh, you, you summarized it pretty well, so I don't know. Uh, if I can add anything, but I, I really do think that her framework, which brings military culture to the fore, is very intuitive. And and, and she does a good job in her case studies uh, in terms of illustrating how those cultural characteristics then shape how militaries interpret threats and how they also carry out specific military tasks, really. So could you write an article taking her framework and applying it to the Canadian military to see what, how its military culture affects the way it does this kind of stuff? Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> but uh, I, I just uh, co-authored an, an article with uh, Bastian Gigerich from the uh, double I double S uh, where we we do some of that we don't go all the way to the tactical level but we do show we compare Canada and and Germany and look how uh, strategic culture and military culture has an impact on how strategic guidelines that were articulated by NATO are translated into action on the ground, how that helps explain the variations and outcomes we see from PRT to PRT when we compare different NATO nations. But so it's not exactly the same framework, but definitely I think it has broader applicability and, and that's something I would love to do that. Excellent, because you'd be the person I'd ask to do that kind of thing. So Stephanie, uh, we talked about our interviews. I guess the next time we'll be talking, it'll be after the year ahead, so I'll be able to talk about what we did there. And we'll be sort of giving our last podcast of 2019 as we start to make our gift lists that we want to send off to Santa. Exactly. And I'll be coming back from the NATO leaders meeting in London. So hopefully I'll have some fresh tidbits to share and hopefully NATO will still exist by then. That's a good question. (laughs) I I really would like to see Macross stand up and and just say in French to Trump, the emperor has no clothes. (laughs) Yeah, well... Uh, the Secretary General of NATO is in uh, in Paris uh, this week, so I, I'm assuming he's reacting to Cohn's controversial statements on NATO and the fact that it hasn't really disappeared from the news. So. We'll see if the Secretary General is able to rein in Macron or if we'll see some more of that in London. Well, the key thing is whether Trump could remember what happened last week. If he can, then <laughs> it's going to have fireworks. If in the end he's focused on something else because he's got a short attention span, he'll focus on something else. But we'll hear way too much about 2%. I can guarantee you that. Yes. I agree there. All right. Well, have a great week and uh, stay tuned for the remainder of the episode. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your Parisian adventure. <laughs> So 
my name is Rebecca Jensen. I'm currently finishing my dissertation at the Center for Military and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary, and uh, I'm currently living in D.C. I came down here on a Fulbright, and I'm now a dissertation fellow at Marine Corps University. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So the first question I'd like to ask you is what your doctoral dissertation is about. So I'm writing about adaptation and operational art in Iraq and Afghanistan. So primarily ground forces, although everything is joint these days. Excellent. And how did you get interested in this topic? I'm interested in how militaries deal with the disconnects between what they think they're going to do and what they end up having to do, because you're never exactly right. And the degree to which you can recognize the gulf between what you thought you were doing and what you're actually doing is relevant to how well you end up fighting. Um, and there's really, there's two elements to this. There's the question of innovation. So how do we use new things? And it turns out that the way militaries use new capabilities has far more to do with how they think about it than what the capabilities actually are. So one example is helicopters in the U.S. Marines and Army after World War II. The Army saw them as replacement cavalry. So they basically used them as a way to move people around quickly the way they'd used cavalry to do in the past. Um, the Marines developed vertical envelopment. So the Marines basically used them to fight ground warfare in three dimensions. And the technology they were using was identical. It was really just in how they thought about it. Um, the other element I'm looking at is operational art, which is how you connect tactics to strategy. And the simplest way I can think of to explain this is how to make sure you're not doing the wrong things very, very well. Because if you look at a lot of conflicts, certainly including Iraq and Afghanistan, Vietnam, what you see is militaries that are tactically excellent, and yet the series of tactical victories they rack up does not lead them to strategic goals. So what I'm looking at is how do new capabilities in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, how well do commanders use those capabilities to advance towards strategic goals? And you're looking at Afghanistan and Iraq, these forever wars, uh, which means that there is still ongoing interventions in both of those countries. Has this created any obstacles to accomplish the research? Well, the case studies I'm looking at are earlier in the war. So the first case study is urban counterinsurgency, um, which is a new capability for the U.S. They had fought urban warfare and they'd fought counterinsurgency, but never urban counterinsurgency. And I'm looking at the interval before the release of the counterinsurgency doctrine and the surge. And then the second case study I'm looking at is uh, what the military called money as a weapon system. So trying to use development funds at the battalion level or lower to shape the environment in Afghanistan during the Afghan surge, so 2009 to 2013. So it's easier that I'm studying things that uh, are, are largely over and done with and therefore easier to get information about. Um, and the other reason why I'm focusing on operational art, on how tactics connect to strategy, is because uh, that, that lets me put a black box around strategy. I would not want to argue that strategy in either of those theaters was terribly good, um, and I don't particularly want the dissertation to end up being an argument about whether or not they were losses. So if you silo off the quality of the strategy and you look simply at how well did commanders use tactical capabilities to achieve strategic goals, then you don't really need to address that because the question of was it a good strategy is a different realm altogether, and frankly, beyond what colonels and brigadier generals should be concerned with. Interesting. And, and in terms of your data collection strategy, did you do a lot of interviews with commanders? Did you look at primary documents? What did that look like? 
So particularly for the urban warfare, uh, there is a tremendous body of published work. Both the Marine Corps and the Army have oral histories that they transcribed fairly extensively from participants at all levels, and that was really useful. Um, there's also a plethora of memoirs. A tremendous number of veterans, you know, the Duffel blog makes jokes about this, have, have written autobiographies about their time in the war, and that's extremely helpful. Something else that was really useful was the U.S. Army released the official history of the Iraq War, which is actually a joint history, even though it's published by the Army. And with that, they released a tremendous cache of declassified documents. Um, in terms of Afghanistan, because it's looking at the use of funds, um, there's a group called SIGAR. Because it involves public funds, there was extensive and frequent reporting on the use of those funds throughout the war. And, and that was invaluable in looking at patterns of spending, which can then be linked with tactical accomplishments and progress towards strategic goals. Excellent. And you're now a doctoral fellow at Marine Corps University in addition to being a doctoral student at CMSS in Calgary, correct? That's right. Okay, so you've been immersed in the world of Marines. Largely, yes. The Army people I know accuse me of speaking Marine sometimes. <laughs> okay, so what's next? Uh, you're almost done with your dissertation. You're nearing the defense. Uh, have you thought about the next professional steps? So I'm really interested in how militaries think about war and how that affects how well they fight. And uh, the reality is there's not a huge amount of interest in that for the most part in civilian academia. There is some, so options like that are, are always worth pursuing. But there are more opportunities in professional military education. And there are some tremendous schools in Canada and the US and in the UK, all of which would be sort of dream career goals for me. And then in terms of being in a position to evaluate and create doctrine, that's the sort of thing that tends to be done in-house. So I'm also interested in opportunities to actually work for defense, working on studying operational research and developing doctrine in that context. Well, good luck with these uh, last few months, and I look forward to touching base when the dissertation is submitted and defended. Good luck. Thank you so much. My name is Chiara Ruffa, and I'm, um, I'm an associate professor in war studies at the Swedish Defense University and an academy fellow at the, at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. Can you tell us the name of your new book that's out this summer? Yes, my, the name of my new book is entitled Military Cultures in Peace and Stability Operations. And what's really interesting about this book is you compare the experience of the French and Italians in both Afghanistan and Lebanon. So that meant going to Lebanon and Afghanistan. Yeah. And so the important thing first is, is which, who had better food, the French or the Italians? It's hard to say. The Italians had for sure better pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but the French had pretty good, good cooks. So it was pretty, yeah, I'm trying to keep impartial here. <laughs> well, I, th I think you made a good case selection because I think there's a lot of countries, particularly like the Americans, who if you'd been eating with them, you would not, you would make it be easier to distinguish about who is better and who is worse. That was the whole idea of the purposive case selection I opted for, actually. There's all kinds of case selection criteria we don't use, uh, state in our grant applications. Indeed. You went to Afghanistan and worked with both the, the, the French and the Italians in yes, Afghanistan. exactly. There. How did you get access? Uh, it was, it took a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of perseverance. So this book is actually, half of the book is maybe coming from the PhD thesis. And um, so I became interested in 
studying state militaries that were doing peacekeeping and really understanding the military side of peacekeeping, of peacekeeping operations at large. And I started off just by trying to understand how I could get authorized to go there. And then, of course, I, I got a lot of no, a lot of slam doors, and eventually I found a, a few key people that really helped me out and have been supporting, actually, me and my research for, for now for a long time. So I uh, got authorized as the Joint Chief of Staff, both in France and Italy. Uh, in order to be able to conduct this research, and that's how I started. And so it was a basic question that you had? Why is it that some um, military organizations try, tend to prioritize combat activities in peacekeeping missions, while others would emphasize their humanitarian posture, despite being deployed under very similar circumstances? There was this really interesting empirical puzzle that came at me as soon as I landed in Lebanon and I arrived in the United Nations mission in Lebanon. In the whole area of operation, it was pretty clear that different contingents behaved differently, even though they were trying to implement an identical mandate. And it was particularly interesting for the Italians and the French, because they were deployed under the same regional command. They displayed similar amount of material capabilities, similar kinds of vests, similar kinds of tanks, similar amount of personnel deployed. And yet, the French uh, had a much more combat-oriented posture, while the Italians had a much more humanitarian-oriented this is a very good classic natural experiment. You found two, th two actors that are very, very similar to each other, but they had a key difference. And so then the question is, what explains the difference? Exactly. So the, my first step was, so the, the first hunch was not very, was a bit anecdotal and a bit impressionistic. So it took me actually years to collect systematically material on variation in the behavior of these units. But it, it became pretty soon pretty clear that the French were doing a lot more patrolling. So it was not only a matter of posture, it was they were actually doing different things and giving priorities to different things. So while the, the French would patrol a lot more, patrol a lot at night, had a more aggressive behavior when patrolling, the Italians were patrolling a lot less and they were doing a lot more, spending a lot more money on humanitarian activities. And then, so then once I could establish that this variation was not only anecdotal nor impressionistic, but it was quite systematic and persistent over time and across units, then I started to wonder, where is that coming from? And my answer in this book is that military culture is, is the thing that actually can systematically explain most of these variations. And when you say military culture, what do you mean by that? And how do you know it exists? Yeah, so I haven't encountered it. I haven't met her yet. But uh, so it has, this has been a big struggle. But I, I define military culture as a set of attitudes, values, and beliefs that guide the military's functioning. And it, it provides a sort of toolkit for action um, that sort of affects the experience of these soldiers when they are deployed. So it's like a pair of goggles that you would wear when going out on a mission. It would just make you look at the, at the area of operation, at the environment that you're embedded in, in a different way. So I argue that there is, I find that actually the French and the Italian military cultures are pretty consistent with these variations we were talking earlier about. So this variation with, you know, with, where we see the French being behaving in a more combat-oriented way and the Italians behaving in a more humanitarian-oriented way. So it seems that doctrines, training, standard operating procedures alone are unable to explain these variations in behavior. But there is something about their, you know, their long, deeply ingrained sort of set of attitudes, beliefs, and values about the organization that seems to be quite aligned with this, you know, more combat-oriented versus more humanitarian-oriented posture and behavior. Okay, so you went to uh, Lebanon and Afghanistan to see how the behavior plays out. Yeah. 
how did you find the culture? Did you go to Italy and France and, and look at how they train their soldiers or did you do interviews there to figure out what their values are? Mm -hmm. So I went, I, I, the, the, the move has been a little bit backwards. So basically I started from behavior and then I, I started to interview peacekeepers, French and Italian peacekeepers deployed in both Lebanon and Afghanistan to understand what their experience of the operation was. And there also there was a very striking variation, which is actually my causal mechanism, because I found that their perception of the mission was very different. For the Italians, the UN mission in Lebanon was a traditional peacekeeping mission, mm -hmm. and there was no enemy to be found. While for the French, deployed in a nearby area operation with all these similar conditions that I described before, um, had experienced this as a peace enforcement operation, and they fought that there was a very clearly identifiable enemy, which was Hezbollah. And so this variation then really pushed me asking more questions about so what do you think about the role of the military and how do you perceive yourself? So, and then I went back to both France and Italy. I've been following these units for a number of years and, um, and I've been visiting them at their bases and doing interviews there as well and to, to, to back up this um, and really understand what this culture was. And if I could see, you know, any commonality in the narratives that all these peacekeepers across ranks were telling me about. The, the theme that was recurring was, in the Italian case, that there was a, almost a, 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 a very big concern for being a humanitarian military, being, you know, good at peacekeeping, being good at delivering humanitarian aid. And on the French side, there was a very clear concern in being professional, being assertive, but in a contained way. Well, what's interesting is I could see how that would play out in Lebanon where it wasn't very, as the military would say, kinetic. But how does the Italian belief about doing peacekeeping and humanitarian stuff play out in a place like Afghanistan, particularly since you went to not just Kabul, but you also went to Parat? And so there's more combat going on. How can they maintain the same attitude in the face of not just potential violence, but casualties? Well, that's precisely the, the, the power of military culture because somehow uh, it made the Italian really label their involvement in Afghanistan as a peace enforcement operation, while, you know, to the rest of the, of the coalition, ISAF, it was, at least in most places, at least in the south and in the, and in the east, it was clearly a counterinsurgency operation, or at least it had some very strong component of that. So the Italians were very, even in Afghanistan, well, I mean, it was, it, it was clear to the Italians that it was not as calm as in Lebanon, but it, they were still portraying and labeling the mission as a peace enforcement in peacekeeping terms, while to the rest of the world, ISAF has never really been a peacekeeping operation. Very famously, when the Italians left a particular sector, Capisa, it was quiet, and then when the French walked through, it became very violent. And the story was that the Italians had bought off the opposition and the, and the French were not aware of this. Did, is this something that came across, you came across in your research? Well, first of all, it came across my research also because I was actually there when it happened. Oh, and really? During the, not in Capisa, but I was in the regional command. I was in Kabul and I was interviewing French soldiers. I experienced this from, from quite close. The, the Capisa incident really confirms a little. It's, it's quite coherent, actually, with what I'm trying to argue because the Italians, because of their military culture, would spend a lot of time uh, trying to sort of, uh, deliver humanitarian aid, but at the same time they had pretty high force protection measures, which in their case meant that they would just not leave the base as much, or if they did, they could actually just buy off the, you know, the, the, the criminals or the Taliban's uh, active in their, in their area. Now the big problem was that when they handed over their, this, that valley to, to the French, 
in, in May 2008, they basically didn't inform them sufficiently about their, what their strategy had been in order to pacify that area. Mm -hmm. And the French had a completely different approach. They were much more present, much more oriented to combat. They were you know, much more present on the territory. They were doing much more patrolling. When the Taliban saw that, they felt they had to react. I think that partly explains actually what happened and the ambush that they were so deadly. Okay, so you write about that in your book? Yeah. Excellent. I guess the question now is, uh, have you followed up and seen how the various uh, the Italians and the French are playing out in places like Mali or elsewhere? Do you, do you see, or you, as you watch the news, you just sort of notice what's going on there and you go, yeah, yeah, that's, I saw that before, it's happening again. My, my move has been slightly different. So I've been, um, and, and really for this book, rather than uh, following the, what the French and the Italians have been doing after Lebanon and Mali, I've been trying to understand where military culture was coming from mm -hmm. because I felt that it, I, was not, I was on pretty shaky ground, that I, I, was, I really wanted to understand I mean, whether those patterns like prof contained professionalism, contained assertiveness in the French case, and the humanitarian belief in the Italian case, where that came about, if it was just me that kept finding this in the narrative of these peacekeepers, that these veterans or, or those, deployed, those that I interviewed in the field, uh, where that was coming from. So I did, um, so I tried to sort of back up for the book, I back up, backed it up with, um, with a little bit of a historical institutionalist theory on how uh, military culture is emerging and how it can be you know, sustained and how it needs to be somewhat functional to the civil-military relations equilibrium that exists in a country. That's excellent. It's, it's really a challenging way to go. I've, I've avoided culture in my work for a variety of reasons, but one is it's really hard to measure. It's really hard to put your fingers on it. Whereas you can say, aha, this institution exists, and it creates these incentives, therefore I expect this behavior. But culture is just a thorny, thorny concept. And so the fact that you've been able to handle it the nice thing about podcasts is people can't see your eyes roll, uh, but uh, she handled it quite well. I will, I will say, uh, in the book uh, I mean, I, I and in the conversations. I mean, I would say that you know, I, I'm not pretending it's you know the magic variable that can explain all possible kinds of you know behavior. It doesn't explain everything that happened in uh, you know and, and everything that these peacekeepers did. And I think one should also be very careful and not making a two over over deterministic arguments. But I think there is a nice alignment still between these beliefs that seem to be quite pervasive um, in Italy and France about their own, you know, their military cultures. And then what we tend to see um, once, you know, we have taken into account standard operating procedures, mandates, mm -hmm. and, and all these other. And what's striking about the, case, the French case that you're looking at is that France had sort of a dual nature in Afghanistan for a while there because Jacques Chirac didn't want to give George Bush any favors after 2003, so there was a soft operation that nobody ever heard of that was doing a fair amount of, of, of work in the South, a fair amount of violence in the South. Despite the culture of the French military, their tasks they were given in Kabul was, was much more peacekeeping. And so you have this mismatch between their culture and what their political imperative was. And so when you have a change in leadership and Sarkozy becomes president, then the, Fr the French military is probably much happier with the instructions they had because it fit their culture better because they then could go out and do more patrolling and things like that. I remember interviewing, because I focused on the unit deployed in the regional current capital, which was the 8th Marine Parachute Infantry Battalion, which is an elite unit. And I remember interviewing some of these NCOs and some of these officers, and they were so mad because they had been sent to the regional command capital where everything was quiet, 
while the 9th uh, Marine Parachute Infantry Battalion, so their sister battalion, yeah. had been deployed to, to an area that, to their, you know, in, in their saying, was a much more interesting one. So there you also, you know, it's totally in line with what you're, what you're saying. Um, and one experience of this was I was, were you, when were you in Afghanistan? 2008, and again later on in 2012. I was there on an eight-day tour in 2007, and they took us to our RC centrals, uh, where the Italians and the French and the Germans were at the time. They had this gun show where they showed us their equipment, and it seemed like they were all compensating for the fact that they were all not allowed to do anything more kinetic. And so we got, I have a picture of myself wearing a like, German uh, sniper netting, and we saw grenade launchers and, and little drones you throw. and It was all very striking, but it seemed like this, there was a subtext there about frustration on the part of these militaries uh, about being stuck in, in, in the boring spot in Afghanistan. Did you find the same for the Italians? Or? I, you know, I, I think it was probably more from the Italians than from other, but it was all three, so I, I, at the time I wasn't really trying to figure out who the difference was. Yeah. It's more about trying to figure out who had the pizza-shaped berets. Because <laughs> I think it was the Italians who have this really large flat beret. Yeah. Yeah. After hearing the Canadian and Americans always complain about the berets to, to see the Italians with this really strange-looking one. You had a book talk based on your book uh, here at this conference, but you've also had a, a presentation. And so uh, tell us a little bit about what you presented. So um, this is part of a, what I presented yesterday. is really part of a new, a new project that I've been um, working on with Bas Jetschens from the Netherlands Defense Academy where we are trying to understand what's in a peacekeeping mission. What is the experience of the peacekeepers when they are deployed? What does it mean to be deployed in peacekeeping for an individual level sort of variable values? So we have um, sets of paper. One has uh, just come out in international peacekeeping, and it's about incoherence. So we try to look at really the structure of the mission in Mali and to try to understand how these peacekeepers deployed make sense of the incoherence that they experience when it comes to you know, this mission that is extremely ambitious in its, in its goals uh, because it's the first time that we have a multidimensional integrated mission with a protection of civilian mandates, which has a civilian component, uh, an intelligence component. So the intelligence component is really the new thing in the UN mission in Mali. It's the first time that UN peacekeeping experiments a little bit with that. And so we are trying to understand what the challenges and opportunities of doing something that could potentially answer a lot of the problems relating to UN peacekeeping, namely when it comes to information gathering, uh, but also all the challenges it poses in terms of creating, you know, as one of our interviewees told us, divided information, divided race. So there's really sort of uh, really important divides between the global south and the, and the western world when it comes to sharing information. That's what we're looking at. Well, intel sharing is always a, a controversial uh, thing because even in places like Bosnia or Kosovo, there was always complaints about the United States not sharing all of its intelligence with its allies, and that's a NATO operation. But of course, the Americans will remind everybody that since it's S4 and K4, there are Russians involved. And even if leave the Russians out of the loop, you still have to deal with, uh, I don't know, the French. And the French happen to have closer relationships with the Serbs. And so if you're sharing your intelligence about how you're trying to find Serbian war criminals, yeah. you might be telling the Serbian war criminals because the French might be telling them what, what's going on. But yes, there's also this uh, real gap in, in UN missions of not just of national restrictions about what you can share with other countries, but techno huge technology gaps because drones are scarce. They're a relatively new technology. In the presentation yesterday, it became clear that that was one of the real added values of having these Swedes and, and Dutch wandering around Mali is that, yes, the African-based units can interrogate people 
and get information that way, but they can't get the pictures, the satellite pictures, they can't get the drone pictures. I would assume maybe even uh, there might be some code breaking and some uh, signals intelligence yeah. uh, going on as well, and that's something that the Europeans with, be with these better capabilities can, can gather. The problem, though, it remains that uh, you're absolutely right, uh, but the problem remains that uh, I mean, when if you don't trust whom you're working with, then it becomes extremely difficult to even you know with these high-tech UAVs, you you know you may collect extremely fine-grained information packages, but then if you cannot share them, the question remains like what does it work for? And so a lot of a lot of these peacekeepers that we have been interviewing have been really frustrated, and they you know they talk about the fact that they are just doing navel gazing the whole day. They collect really fancy stuff, but then they can't share them and they can't make them of use to anybody. Well, and I guess one of the striking things is just simply that this is the first time there's been an intelligence cell on the ground in the UN mission. Yeah. And any military person would be scratching their head going, what were they doing for the past 50 years? Because how can you operate without intelligence? There was a sort of information gathering system, which uh, you know was channeled through the U2 cells. In, so in basically most UN peacekeeping missions, you would find a U2 cell that is tasked with information gathering. Um, but then, um, so there has been, in a way, intelligence gathering in UN peacekeeping, but it was really relying on the idea that every contributing country was, was going to share the necessary information with the others, which never really happened. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time that and, you know, serious effort to do serious military intelligence was put in place. And the, one of the problems has been that, um, without thinking too much about it, um, they, the, for the UN mission in Mali, the idea was just to import a NATO structure, which is a CFUL, the All Source Information Fusion Unit, which was just um, put under the, the command of the force commander. But that was not really maybe thought through to be simply an add-on to a UN peacekeeping mission, mission, which has a completely different structure. So that was part of the problem. And was this done when the mission was first launched, or was it something yeah. more recently? So it was, it was done when the mission was first launched, and, and then in December 2017, there has been a huge improvement made when the U2, the traditional information gathering cell, was fused with the ASIFU unit. So that was a really good idea to, in order to try to mm -hmm. somehow harmonize this under a joint commander. Because what many people may not know is that Mali is one of the most uh, dangerous UN peacekeeping missions. Yeah. They, they've if more UN peacekeepers have been killed there yeah. than in almost any other peacekeeping mission. Uh, and so you'd hope that if they had more intelligence, that they would be stepping into the fewer ambushes. Yeah. But it does. It, I guess the counterfactual you don't know, which is if they didn't have the intelligence. Maybe even more dangerous, or the intelligence allowed them to understand their environment better. So even if they're still getting hit, they understand that they're not taking as reckless chances as they might have done in the past. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's, it's really, as, as you're suggesting, it's really important to always think about uh, the counterfactual. And I think in general, a lot of the literature on peacekeeping, particularly the quantitative one, suggests that peacekeeping works, that it works at uh, reducing the level of violence and reducing the amount of civilians killed. So in a way, I mean, in, in general terms, peacekeeping works, but this doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. And you know, one obvious problem in the, in the UN mission in, in, in Mali is really that we have intelligence packages that are uh, basically reported and transferred, transmitted back up to the command structure and cannot be shared um, you know, with the peacekeepers deployed in the same area where these packages have been collected. And so I think that a better integration in the, in the command structure 
um, really at the tactical level, say between the Swedish and Dutch ISR and the African peacekeepers deployed would be in order, but this raises the more general question of trust and, you know, thrown and, and also like a sort of the role that Western peacekeepers tend to play. Western peacekeepers are much less prone to take risks than African peacekeepers. So African peacekeepers are really those that are, you know, taking the risk, being present on the ground, patrolling, um, and so it, it's um, it, it's it's a very difficult situation to mm. solve. And it leads to divides between what was it, the barefooted soldiers and the skiers. See, that that is actually um, that comes from it's a quote from one of our, of our interviewees that that was his way of making sense of what was going on, um, and also to explain to us why it was not possible to share. Um, information with barefoot soldiers that it had to stay among skinny nations. Yeah. Incidentally, interestingly, the, ne the Dutch include themselves, uh, you know, the Netherlands includes itself, it, itself into a skiing nation, even though there are not many mountains where to go skiing in the Netherlands. I guess they go cross-country skiing, although again, they're not fam known for competing that well in the Olympics and that either. They're a skating nation, but... Exactly. Congratulations on the book, Thank and so I look forward to bumping into you back again in Paris next week. Me too, looking forward to that. The recent controversy involves Canadian students, that is Carleton students, going to the Chinese embassy in Ottawa, and they were forewarned not to ask any tough questions. I found this to be a problem because embassies are supposed to engage publics whether they're asking easy questions or tough ones. That, yes, their job is to do propaganda, but they're also their job is to navigate the country's relationships with the public's uh, where they are residing. That is, that the Chinese embassy in Ottawa is supposed to handle relations with the Canadian public, including when the Canadian public has tough questions. Given the controversies between China and Canada over trade, such as canola, over the arrests of Canadians in China, given the uh, protests in Hong Kong, and as well as the rounding up of Uyghurs who are being sent off to concentration camps, there's lots of questions that Canadian students might have. And yet these Carleton students were forewarned not to ask tough questions. And first, this says something about the people who are uh, hurting or, or chaperoning the students, they shouldn't be forewarning these students. They should be telling the students to be polite, but ask questions that they think are important. That's their job as students is to ask tough questions. And the embassy officials should just be prepared for that. That's their job. And one of the problems we've had lately is that the Chinese don't want any criticism whatsoever and are willing to be pretty blunt and break off relations and make threats when people ask tough questions or say tough things about the Chinese. The problem is that China is now one of the two most important countries in the world, most one of the most powerful countries in the world, and they're going to get criticism. And they can react in a couple different ways. One way is to overreact and be overly sensitive to everything that goes on and try to hope that, that this, this effort will quell criticism. The alternative is to suck it up. That is, it's part of what happens when you are a great power. The more relevant you are, the more flack you're going to receive, and they might as well just handle it. That is, accept that they're going to get criticized, try to engage their critics, and lead to a more productive conversation, maybe lead to a more productive messaging for them. But I think uh, pushing back very hard on any bit of criticism is going to produce problems for them. And so I think that, that this is one of the basic ideas of international relations, that the more threatened you are, the more likely to create a counterbalancing coalition. The Chinese should be hip to that. And so if I were advising the Chinese, I would say that they should react a little less strongly to criticism and think a little bit more about how to engage the publics around the world, because soft diplomacy is a thing, soft power is a thing, and they need to realize that if they want to get their way in the world, it shouldn't always be about pushing people really hard, because people are going to end up pushing back. 
And on that note, I just want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving in the United States. And I look forward to the holiday season in Canada as we start to try to figure out what we want on our Santa's list. Have a good week. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.